Welcome to another episode of Becoming Referrable, the podcast that helps you be the kind of advisor people can't stop talking about. I'm Julie Littlechild, and I'm the founder of AbsoluteEngagement.com. And I'm Steve Wershing, president of The Client Driven Practice. Today we're talking with Kathleen Burns Kingsbury, who's a wealth psychology expert, founder of KBK Wealth Connection, host of the Breaking Money Silence podcast, and author of several books, including How to Give Financial Advice to Women and How to Give Financial Advice to Couples. She served on the CNBC Digital Financial Advisor Council as a thought leader columnist for Investment News and is frequently quoted in publications like the Wall Street Journal and Reuters. She holds a master's degree in psychology and an undergraduate degree in finance. For more information, you can find out more about her at www.kbkwealthconnection.com. You know, I loved a lot about what Kathleen had to share. She shared some incredible insights on working with couples and doing it in a way that engages both of them while in really acknowledging some of the complex dynamics. So in this episode, she'll look at picking up on verbal and nonverbal cues, at gender myths that can derail effective communication, and at using your own body language to engage couples. But what was really exciting is how she tied all of that into referrals and shared some very simple strategies on how you can make being a couple-friendly advisor one of the best ways to attract new clients. So with that, let's go to our conversation with Kathleen. So Kathleen, welcome to the show and thanks for joining us today. Thank you, I'm excited to be here. So you're really known for teaching advisors how to uh, how to advise women and how to advise couples. So let's focus on the couples aspect of it. What's what's different about advising couples than advising individual clients? Well, I think, you know, the obvious thing is when you're advising a couple or a partners, there's two people in the room as opposed to one. And that really kind of changes the dynamic because no longer is an advisor just asking a question and getting an answer. Uh, he or she is having to ask questions and notice what's happening both with uh, each of the partners as well as what's happening between them. So it just becomes a little bit more complex. I think it's more rewarding, um, but it also can be a little bit more challenging. And I I think in in your book, if I remember correctly, you talk about actually having to advise three entities. You have to advise him and her and them, and that there are actually three different things going on, not just two. Is that correct? Right. So there's something that I talk about in the book, and I always talk about what I'm presenting called balancing the triangle. And basically, if you picture the advisor at the top of the triangle, um, that person, by the nature of seeing two people at once, is in a triangular relationship. And so they need to be able to monitor and manage and foster trust with partner one, um, as well as partner two. And if you think about the triangle image, the bottom of the triangle is kind of the couple's dynamic. What's happening between the two partners is also important and can be quite useful for an advisor. Can you give us some idea of what that might sound like when when an advisor would be in a discussion with somebody and and would say, you know, and and they realize that they they have to the advisor has to address the dynamic between the clients and and how that might play out in a in a meeting? Sure, I'll give a classic example, right? So you have a husband and a wife, they're sitting there. Maybe um the advisor is speaking to the husband. 
the husband says something that you notice um, upsets the wife or is off-putting to her, right? So we'll go with the obvious, you know, rolling of the eyes. Not that I've ever done that in my own couplehood, but <laughs> <laughs> so you notice all of a sudden that you're really connecting, you know, with that one partner, the male partner, and then you notice this kind of social cue from the female partner. And so it may be saying something along of, you know what, let's just hang on for a second. You know, I noticed you had a reaction to that. I'm wondering um, if you can tell me a little bit about that reaction. So it's being able to attend to not only what's going on verbally, but also what's going on non-verbally. And even if the partner, in this case the woman, says, oh, no, nothing, and kind of denies that she had a reaction, at least she knows, oh, you're paying attention to me too. It's not just about my husband, which is often kind of a mistake. I think well-intended advisors make, um, but they do to just attend to one partner versus both of them. Okay. Um, yeah, and I, I think that all of us, all of us who are married, understand the uh, you know when she says fine, it's not fine. Yeah, <laughs> and vice versa. You know, um, often we give stereotypical answers or examples in the field of advising, and one of the things I'm trying to do is really highlight that you know the woman can be the financially dominant one in the relationship uh, and have the uh, closer relationship with the advisor. It's not all, only the man, or there's also you know situations where there's the same uh, gender in the room. So, um, but yes, I think we've all been in relationships where we've had that experience of like, oh, I you know. I don't agree, but whether you say that overtly or whether you indicate that with your body language is two different things. Do you talk at all about how to what those cues might look like and how to read them? Because I know I just said something extremely stereotypical, but are, are there also stereotypical things on the male side? And when you say on the male side, tell me a little bit more about what you mean. You know, the joke is that if, if the wife says, you know, fine, that she, she means what the actual translation is, it's not fine, we should address this. Um, are there things that men say that, that sort of give the same kind of cue? Well, I think that there's gender uh, myths uh, that affect, you know, both men and women. You know, one of the myths that's out there in terms of uh, men is, you know, all men are interested in investments or all men are interested in finance. And so, um, you know, what I think advisors need to be careful with all clients, but certainly working with couples, is falling into the belief that uh, women are going to react one way around money in a financial conversation and men are going to act uh, another way. And certainly there's generalizations we can make about gender and, you know, I talk about those, but those are just the foundation. You really have to attend to and, and ask questions and really get to know those individual uh, clients in your meetings along with the fact that they're working together or hopefully working together as a team better way of putting it is maybe you have to they're working together okay sure that well then that, that makes sense and so wh what kinds of things do you do if you find that they're not working well together I mean do you have to uh, sort of pause the advisory relationship and work on the dynamic there or how do you how, how would you address something like that well I think it's really up to the individual advisor I mean ideally what I would recommend that advisors do is to at least notice it now they may notice it internally and not maybe do anything about it, but just kind of notice it for themselves. Or they can notice it um, in a very gentle way to help them help the couple, uh, you know, be able to have the conversations they need to have about money. So it might look like this, where you are sitting with a couple and, um, you know, they are, you know, not arguing, but bickering back and forth. Maybe the question was, you know, how much do we want to uh, put in our retirement fund this year? And so they're kind of bickering a little bit 
back and forth. And so if you were to notice it, it would look something like, you know, I realize that this isn't always easy. It seems like an easy question. How much money do we want to put aside? But it seems like you have two different perspectives. And then turning, your body language, everything, turning to one of the partners, starting, I often say start with the non-dominant financial partner, but turning to them and then asking them specifically kind of what their thoughts are, and then turning to partner two and asking them what their thoughts are, and then letting them know that you aren't necessarily the person that's going to make the decision, but you're going to help them figure out is there a compromise or is there a way in which we need to, um, you know, figure out the, the way to solve this problem by honoring both of you. And so it's really giving voice to both partners and noticing when they're not getting along and not making it wrong. I mean, you know, it's, conflict is actually healthy, so it's not necessarily wrong that they're not getting along. It actually is just part of having a money conversation and trying to figure out how can I meet my individual needs and at the same time, how do I meet my needs in my partnership? So Kathleen, how does that affect uh, the advisor's relationship with the couple when, when they can you know, interpret some of those signs and, and address all three of those entities in the room? My sense is that as advisors, it's really important to help clients with things that they need help with. And one of the biggest things that I think um, clients need help with is being able to have these types of money conversations in a place that feels um, safe, for lack of a better word, you know, a place that feels like it's not going to get out of control. And so um, I think if an advisor is willing to offer that client-centric approach of, yes, I'm going to help you with the technical aspects, I'm going to help you plan for your financial future or whatever it is that you're planning for, but I also am going to help you have dialogues and conversations that are going to help me understand where both of you are coming from as opposed to just defaulting to one. And the, the most, I guess, startling uh, statistic out there that, that shows if you're not couple-friendly what can happen is that actually 70% of women fire their couple's advisor within one year of the death of their spouse. And so basically, the part that's in the advisor's control is, you know what, if I really have a good relationship with her as well as her partner, the chances of her actually going to the competition when her partner passes has re been reduced. So I say all the time to advisors, work at having that good relationship with both of them because you don't know what types of family transitions are coming down the pike and clients are much more sticky if you attend to both of them and what they need and then also help them as a couple or as a family. I have heard that statistic before about how many widows choose a different advisor and that is amazing and that's, you know, we're talking today about making you referable but I mean this is actually a client retention issue as well as, you know, the better than getting referred is keeping the, the clients that you have. Well, and it's both, I think, because a lot of people in the industry don't actively practice being couple-friendly, meaning they, you know, try very hard to see both partners, develop a relationship with both partners, and really work with them on their partnership financial goals as well as if there's any individual financial goals. And so, yes, it's a huge thing when it comes to retention. Um, but it's also, I think, a really great way to be referable and marketable and to stand out in a very crowded marketplace. So tell us a little bit more about that. How would, how would an advisor describe themselves or how would their clients end up talking about them that would reflect how they're different and make them more referable that way? Well, in my book, How to Give Financial Advice to Couples, I talk about three activities or three steps that I think every advisor should take 
you know, ideally before seeing a couple, but everybody's pretty experienced, probably that's listening to this podcast, um, so at any point in your career. And, and the first step is to identify what is my couple's philosophy, right? How do I want to work with couples? Um, what are some of the guidelines I have? So when you get a new client, you can lay out the client expectations very clearly. And when I talk about a client philosophy, you know, some advisors um, see clients, a uh, couple clients, they see only one partner on a regular basis. That's a couple's philosophy. Other advisors see both partners all the time, no exception. That's a couple's philosophy. And I think most people kind of fall somewhere in the middle. And so just being really clear as to why do you do that, how does that serve you, the advisor, because it's okay that it serves you, and how, more importantly, does it serve your client? And then once you decide on what your couple philosophy is, then it's really important to think about who is that ideal couple client? Who do I really enjoy working with? And who's that client that I look down at my, you know, day timer or on my smartphone and I think, ugh, I can't believe they're coming in. <laughs> so you want more of the people you enjoy that you click with and you, you know, hopefully they'll fit with your couple's philosophy. And then the last step that you need to do is to really write out a couple's mission statement. It is not a huge, huge project. It's two sheets and if somebody wants it, they certainly can reach out to me and I can send you this. Uh, worksheet. But basically what the couple's mission statement does is it summarizes these things as to who do I really want to work with, who's my ideal couple client, what is my philosophy, and how do I communicate that not only to the couples that are walking in, but the prospects and maybe my current clients, and you can also use it with your staff so they're having a consistent message. And if you very clearly define yourself as I'm a couple-friendly advisor, I'm somebody that really wants to help you with X, Y, and Z, maybe that's breaking money silence, having better financial conversations, then you become more referable because they know you as somebody that does something specific, not an advisor that does retirement or investments or, you know, that doesn't set you apart. But being couple friendly and really helping people talk about um, money and work together as partners does set you out, uh, set you apart, excuse me. And so I think you become more referable not only to the end client, but also to your centers of influence. Um, so I really think it's a, you know, obviously I'm passionate about it. I think it's a great niche for someone to consider and then just getting really clear about who in that segment of couple clients, which is a huge segment, um, what's your niche within that niche? I was just going to ask you more about that. So I, I was going to ask if being couple friendly is a niche unto itself or if it is just an aspect, you know, a, a, a part of your niche where, you know, you focus on solving certain kinds of problems or addressing certain kinds of things and you do it in a couple friendly way so can you talk a little about to what extent it can be a niche of its own or how it might affect the niche that you're in sure i think unfortunately the way the industry is today and hopefully it will be different soon is that being couple friendly given how people are typically working with partners now actually is a niche because there are a lot of people out there for a variety of reasons that are not really working to help the couple communicate around financial issues is not they're not necessarily you know either making it mandatory or strongly encouraging partners to come in and talk on a regular basis about their financial lives and because that's not happening just doing that makes you um, different hopefully that will eventually change now, I'm of the belief that any time you are thinking about niching, if you can go deeper and wider, great. So, uh, for instance, if you want to be couple-friendly, that's the initial thought. 
And then when you start to drill down into who's my ideal client, what's my couple philosophy, you'll probably get to a more defined place of saying, you know what, I really like working with couples that are from blended families when they're thinking about legacy planning. Sure. Right? Because that's a complicated thing. The conversations are important. And then that that isn't necessarily going to be all that you do, but that's what you're going to be known for. And so if you're known for that, that is a much easier referral than just saying, oh, yeah, you know, I work with clients around legacy planning. No, I work with blended families around legacy planning, and I'm very couple-friendly. That's that, you know, that's a very powerful way of saying it. And I, I can see how describing yourself that way would also help your clients describe you in a different way. Yes, and I think that, you know, the fear is, and I certainly had this. I've been an entrepreneur for over two decades, and I've had this at various points in different businesses. The fear is always, if I get that specific, I'm going to lose people. And until you're able to just trust that it actually will make you more referable and you actually will still get those other referrals. It's not like, you know, all of a sudden you're only going to get legacy referrals um, but or blended family referrals. The truth is you'll get a bunch of other referrals as well, but this will help you fine-tune where do I market, where do I network, you know, how do I tell, like you just said, Steve, how do I tell my clients, you know, the types of clients I want. So I think the more specific we can get, the easier it becomes, and once you trust and you, you, you just kind of cross your fingers and jump off that cliff, what you will find, or at least certainly what I've found and the people I coach have found, is that it takes off. It becomes much easier to do what you need to do in order to continue to grow your business. You know, that's a great point, and um, first, it's a great point that if you if you pick a good target market and you pick a niche... And you look at the numbers. Chances are, if you can if you can become the advisor in that niche in your area, chances are there are way more people than you would ever want in your business plan. So, even if it's a tiny little sliver of the market, it's a lot of potential clients. Exactly. I mean, I think about my specialty in women and wealth. I mean, that that's kind of a huge um, market to be in. But but there's tons of work to be had in that market. Um, but, you know, I'm following my own advice and I'm moving towards, you know, how do we work um, better with female breadwinners and getting a little bit more specific. So I think it's really important. And, you know, that scarcity model of there's not going to be enough to go around. Um, I find generalists have trouble building their practice, but those who get really clear about who they work best with, who they enjoy working with, and if there's something above and beyond what the person next to you does, and that can be the couple-friendly piece, um, then it really takes off. You know, I think that's such a critical thought because, you know, it's 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 really hard for a generalist to become referable because there's just nothing to hold on to there. There's nothing to grab onto. And one of the points that you just made, I think, is really important as well is, you know, the way I put it to people is there's a difference between what you go out fishing for and what jumps in the boat on its own. <laughs> I love that analogy, but it's totally true. I've, I've had great things come my way that haven't necessarily fit, you know, I, perfectly into my niche. And then you get to decide, and this is kind of the pleasure of doing this, is you get to decide, is that something that's going to be fun, that I feel qualified and credible to do? Then I'll do it. If not, then I'll refer it to somebody else. And then, you know, that always comes back eventually. As oh, well. sure. Yeah, and, and you know, the, and the great part about it is, and one thing that, that we emphasize when we talk about a niche is that even if you staked out a claim on a niche, it doesn't mean that you have to turn everybody else away. Right. Right. It just means that life becomes a little bit easier in terms of your business life, in terms of what am I going to say yes to, what am I going to say no to. And once again, there's just so much we can do online and in person to 
market and go out and prospect, and you know, it really helps that become much, much more manageable. Right. Now, this is a little bit of jumping topics, but I wanted to make sure that we had time to get this in while we were talking today. You know, your new project addresses breaking money silence, which sounds fascinating. Can you tell us a little more about that whole project? Sure, and thank you for asking. I'm, I'm really excited. I'm uh, working on, um, and I have maybe for about a year, been working on breaking money silence, which basically means helping advisors and clients be able to effectively talk about the human side of finance. So in other words, to be able to talk about not only the numbers, but what do these numbers mean to me? What does money mean to me? What purpose does it have in my life? And how can we have better conversations about money? Um, You know, I don't have the statistic right in front of me, but there was a recent survey, um, I believe it was done by Fidelity, and they asked, you know, do you know how much your partner makes? And a large percentage, it was over 50% of people, did not know what their partner made for a living. (laughs) So it's hard to financially plan if you're not having these conversations. Um, And so I think advisors are really positioned uh, beautifully to be able to help uh, partners, couples, families have these difficult money conversations and, and learn these skills. And here's my lofty goal in writing a book and having a podcast on it and doing a lot of different work around it. You know, my lofty goal is I think if we all break that money taboo in our lives individually, it will have a trickle-down effect where, you know, our, the next generation will be more financially literate. I think advisors will be more client-centric and more comfortable having conversations that I think can really add value to their clients and their business. Um, and ultimately, I think, would be a healthier society. So um, I'm really excited to be exploring that. And that certainly fits with women and wealth and couples and money. It's kind of just the, the next, uh, I guess it's the next niche within a niche. <laughs> right. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the niche squared, you know. Yes, exactly. Nichey niche. Um, it's, um, you know, and, and having the goal of, of better educating the next generation down, boy, that's that's something that we really need. And you can see all kinds of initiatives. If... if um, if an, if an advisor can address that within a household, boy, is that going to be so much more effective than these school programs that they have out there, and all of which are good and necessary and important, but doing, you know, just like any other kind of learning, doing it at home is, is, is to whether it is how you learn it or it reinforces what you're getting at school is so, so critically important. Well, and I, I feel like if we look at, say, say, my generation, I'm the oldest generation X person you can be, <laughs> so I'm a generation Xer. I had traditional parents, so my parents were a little bit older. And, you know, they didn't have a roadmap for how to talk about feelings, let alone feelings around money. I did get more financial literacy training than a lot of people um, that are in a similar situation, but we didn't really talk about goals, values, um, you know, why we spent the money the way that we did. And so they didn't have a roadmap. So part of me says, you know what, let's just create a roadmap to help people have these conversations. Because what I find is when you start to have them, they're no longer as scary, overwhelming, um, dare I say they can be fun. And so in my marriage, I've made a point of trying to do this um, with my nieces and nephews, um, trying to have these money conversations. Um, and I know a big one that's out there, actually, um, is the money conversation with our parents. You know, when our parents start to get older, how do we broach that conversation of, are you financially going to be okay? Are you, do you have something set up? So if you become sick, you know, you know what the process is or what you want. Those are all really difficult conversations. So I think it works generationally, you know, going forward with young people. I also think it works for the people um, like myself and, and that are kind of caught in the middle between the two generations 
or three generations. And, and related to that, you know, you, one of the things you're working on as part of that project is your new podcast where you're talking about breaking money myths, which uh, beyond being really hard to say is really <laughs> interesting. And do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. I um, de- designed this podcast to be something that would be um, fun and easy to listen to, and it's, it's for advisors, but it's also for clients. It's for anybody who you know, has a relationship with money, so that's all of us. And basically what I do each uh, session is I bring somebody on, they identify their favorite money myth. In other words, what's you know, a statement about money that may have um, gotten you into trouble or you've seen clients get into trouble. And then together we work over the course of just 20 minutes to bust it wide open. And I know I w- had the honor, Steve, of having you on the other day. Um, and your money myth was higher fees will make you, it harder to get clients. And so it was really fun to bust that myth open. It was a lot of fun to talk about that. So I, I so that's that. It's it's a really fascinating project, and uh, and I hope they have a lot of success with it. I cer- I certainly think that it's something that people need to hear more about. What other kinds of things are you working on now that that advisors should know about? Well, I am. Uh, I have a couple of different things going on. I'm currently uh, working on my next book, so stay tuned for that. That you know that takes a while, as you know, Steve. So that is uh, immediate for advisors. And that, and that will be about what? It's called Breaking Money Silence, uh, Helping Clients Shatter Money Taboos and Talk About Finance. And then uh, that book is you know major focus right now. But in between that, I'm doing what I'm usually doing, which is I'm out keynoting at um, top producer conferences or uh, retirement conferences and being able to really talk to advisors about how do you put uh, these skills into place. Because it's one thing to say you're couple-friendly or you're female-friendly, but I really try to focus each and every time I'm connecting with an advisor or an advisor audience, what are the tactics? What do you actually do with this information? We all know it's a problem, but beyond that, how do you start to incorporate some uh, specific strategies in your business? And so I absolutely love doing that. And in between doing that, I count down the days to ski season so I get to actually enjoy some snow. Yeah, how do you how do you work your speaking schedule around all that skiing? Well, spring skiing is the best. Oh. So I find often I'm very busy in um, January, February, and March, and then April, I am known to uh, take the morning off to go for a ski. Oh, that's awesome! Well, your secret is certainly safe with us. Nobody's going to hear this. Yeah, nobody's going to hear this. Right? No, this is going to be great. I love if there's anybody who wants to join me when I'm in Vermont. Well, well there you go. And as, as, at the end, we'll ask you about more your. Than happy. We'll put your address in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> so one thing we want to ask that we want we want to ask all of our guests before we let you go is, uh, and this can relate to things you've talked about. It can relate to things that you advise clients on, or it it can be just something totally different. But what three things would you recognize advise or would you recommend that advisors can do that will get people talking about them more? I think the first is what we've already talked about today, whether it's being couple-friendly or whether it's identifying what your specific niche is. I I really think that that is such an important piece um, to determine to help you become more referable. I think the second thing um, is really to be as client-centric as you can be with everything that's going on, both legislatively and also just how clients are feeling. Um, to really work at developing, um, and this sounds easy, but it's not, uh, skills around active listening, along, uh, around really trying to get into how your clients are thinking and feeling about money and being able to um, really do less talking and more listening in order to help them. And I think lastly, um, you know, I think if advisors can figure out how they can be thought leaders within that particular 
um, niche, that can make a big difference. And thought leaders could be, you know, I'm going to stand up at a conference, I'm going to share what I have to share about this topic. You don't, to be a thought leader, you don't always have to be the best, but you have to be thinking about it, and you've got to take that risk to put yourself out there. And I think that makes a big difference as well. There is a lot of clients out there that need help uh, around managing money and retirement and all the different things that advisors do. So I, I really think niche, be client-centric, and then don't be afraid to put yourself out there as a thought leader. That is awesome advice. Well, as it always does in these things, and whenever you and I talk, Kathleen, time has flown by, and so we we thank you so much for joining us today. Where can people find you? They can go to my website at kbkwealthconnection.com. I'm also on Twitter at kbkspeaks, and I'm on LinkedIn underneath my name, Kathleen Burns Kingsbury. That's great. Well, Kathleen, thank you for joining us today, and uh, we wish you lots of luck on your Breaking Money Myths project, and look forward to talking with you again soon. Thank you. Hey, folks, Steve again. Thanks for joining us on Becoming Referrable. If you like what you've been hearing, please do us a favor and rate us on iTunes. It really helps. You can get all the links, show notes, and other tidbits from these episodes at becomingreferrable.com. You can also get our free report, Three referral myths that limit your growth, and connect with our blogs and other resources. So until next time, so long.